1 through 47. We are concluding John chapter 5. And we'll start off like we have been with, with a review, and then we will go through this last section. This section, uh, you know, when, when we read it, the tone of it, and I'll mention this again, is pretty harsh when it comes across. It, it comes across as a, as a rebuke. And this is a warning, to make no mistake about that, that Jesus is giving us a warning. It's a warning that we should heed. But the other thing we need to think about is that when Jesus gives us a warning, you know, a, a yield sign, a stop sign, a stop light, those things are designed to keep us safe. You know, yes, they're stops. Yes, they, they heat our progress a little bit. But the idea is for us to avoid a hazard. It is a out of love when Jesus gives us a warning, gives us something like this. And that's exactly what he's doing for these guys. In love, he's saying, hey, whoa, stop. Stop what you're doing. You're headed down the wrong path. Change direction. So when we read these things, we really realize the heart behind it. When he is rebuking, when he is correcting that he really wants these guys to change their lives, that this is an opportunity, and it's an opportunity for us to, uh, to change course, to change our lives, to, to stop and to heed this warning. So that with that in our minds, let's go to, uh, to John chapter 5. We're in verses 31 through 47. It says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, that, that very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the, the only God? But do not think, I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The title for today's message is Four Testimonies, and we're going to go through and break down these verses, but we've got to start with our review. Because out of context, this really doesn't make a lot of sense. Reading that out, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? These things that you don't believe. What is, what is he saying here when he says about testimony and testimony? My, my own testimony about myself is not true. What is he saying there? So we're going to start with our review. Remember, if we go back to, to verse 1, that's Jesus is healing a man, a paralyzed man, at the pool of Bethesda. It's so where we start off with, and we showed where that pool of Bethesda was, and we talked about how Bethesda means the house of mercy or house of grace. And the man takes his mat. He gets up and walks, 38 years paralyzed. He gets up and he walks and he goes to the temple. And there the Jesus tells the man to stop sinning. That's his, his words to the guy. You're healed. Now stop sinning. And the man and the Pharisees, they have a couple of conversations about who healed him and why he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And the conclusion, we really don't know about the man. We don't know. 
But we do know that that at, at that point, the Pharisees resolved to kill Jesus. And again, we say that casually, but we really need to think about that because those men as a group resolve among themselves to commit murder, to take the life of another human being. The only dissenter that we know about is in Nicodemus. Everyone else keeps this pact and they do not waver. There's going to be just a little bit of time and then they're going to carry out this plan. They're going to first try to have Jesus arrested at the temple and then they'll stop because there's too many people, but then they'll pay Judas 30 pieces of silver to tell them when Jesus is away from the crowds and, and Judas does. And then they use the Romans to have him arrested at Gethsemane and they try him for blasphemy and hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. And again, that's a warning for us about carrying fear and anger and hatred in our hearts. Those folks were so afraid of losing their power, of losing their position, that they were angry that Jesus would contradict them, and he did so with authority. And so they hated him. They hated him for it. Hated him enough to plan and to carry out the murder of an innocent man. From Jesus, we learn about the nature of God. God does not rest on the Sabbath like we rest on the Sabbath. If he did, the world would end. Jesus says he and his Father both work on the Sabbath. We also learn that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the master of ceremonies for everything that we do on the Sabbath. And we put this quote up for the last few weeks. We'll put it up again. It's from John Piper. It says, that's what the Sabbath is for, the restful, focused enjoyment of God. And we can read about in Mark chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, verses 27 through 28. That's where Jesus says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Then we learn about Jesus being the author and the perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3, it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is God's divine word. That's in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. I've been, there's a, a, a couple of videos on this, and I haven't found a, a good way to present it. We're talking about creation. We, um, we talk about the, the way the world makes, and it's amazing to think about the, the, actually the very root of everything in our universe is actually information. It's, we think about protons and neutrons and electrons and, and matter, but that's, all of those things actually are information. They're little ones and zeros that somehow get organized into the things that we see, whether it's you know, the fabric or the, the chair. All of that requires information. When you think about DNA, it's protein ones and zeros. It's kind of a complex idea. It's a complex concept, but our very DNA that's all that is, is words. It's information that then is used to then produce the things that we see, whether it's the rocks or the trees or the birds. The core of that is information. So when John says that in the beginning was the word, that's what information is. It's written word. And for there to be written words that create things, there has to be an author. There has to be somebody who wrote that stuff down for it to come into being. And that's what he is saying here is that Jesus is the author and the perfecter, that Jesus is the word, that, and through him all things were made. That's what it says. It says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
It's amazing how those things come together that when our understanding of the cosmos brings us to the point where we can go, yeah, I can see that, you know, in each atom, in each molecule and how they organize themselves, that the root of that really is how they bind themselves is writing. And that someone had to write those things and that someone had to make those make sense. And they do make sense. And then we get to know the author himself. We get to build a relationship with the author of creation. Jesus is not only the author, but he is the best teacher. He teaches with authority, and we've read through this several times, but it's in Matthew chapter 7 or Luke chapter 19. or you know. Then we go to Jesus having complete authority over life and sickness and disease and death. And we go to John chapter 15 or Matthew chapter 9 or Mark chapter 2 where it says, we have never seen anything like this. Never. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. No one has been able to do the things that Jesus did. Then we went through from, uh, from John, uh, for, um, uh, Matthew cha- uh, geez, John chapter 5, verses 17 on, where we pulled up this stuff from John MacArthur, where Jesus claims equality in person, in works, in power, specifically the power over life and death, equal in judgment, and equal in honor and glory. Kind of contradicts himself, doesn't he? When we go back to our verse for today, where he says, wait a minute, I'm equal in honor and glory to the Father. But then he goes to say, wait, if I testify about myself, my my testimony is not true. Hmm, what's he trying to say there? I do not accept glory from from human hands. What's he trying to say there? That's what we're going to dive into here shortly. But equal in person, equal in works, equal in power, specifically the power over life and death, and equal in judgment, equal in honor and glory. So that's in verses 17 through 18, where he says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Verses 19 and 20. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Equal in power in verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 22, equal in judgment. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. Equal in honor and glory. Verse 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Then it goes on to talk about eternal life the gift of eternal life, and that's in verses 24 through 30. And we talked about the fixed points of our beliefs. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we went over the Apostles' Creed, those things that are absolute fixed that we must all agree upon. And then we talked about there is no salvation outside of Christ. John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really knew me, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And as we talked about Jesus and his, about his equality with God, we realized something, that rejection of Jesus is rejection of God. If you were looking for, I was funny, I, at scout camp last week, there was a lot of people there that were very universalist, in their belief. One of the, the, the traits of scouts is that they are to be reverent. It's one of the, the core tenets of being a scout is being reverent. There's a lot of folks that are like, well, you know, I go out into the, to the woods and I meditate. Or, you know, I really find myself when I, when I go out into nature. 
mm, no, I think, you've, I think you haven't read this. I think you haven't read this part where it says that if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. It says, no one comes to the Father except through me. We get a lot of that sort of spiritual mysticism throughout our culture where people are like, well, you know, I go out to the woods to find myself or I go when I meditate or, you know, to, to each his own. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, nope, sorry. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. I don't know what you're doing out there in the woods, but you aren't communing with the Father because you don't know the Son. That's exactly what it says here. Then Jesus gave us a look at that part of creation and specifically the nature of man. And Jesus tells us that we are eternal and that the reality that we experience after we die will either be in the presence of God or banished from the presence of God. That's verse 24. It says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Remember, he started off by saying, Amen, Amen, very truly or truly, truly, depending on your translation. Then he talked about two resurrections. We talked about two resurrections. One, not everyone's going to experience. The other one, everyone will. The first resurrection is the life bestowed on believers when they take Christ as Lord and Savior. How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit in me? How do I know if my life has been touched by the Holy Spirit? This is kind of a, a fun question to talk about because the thing is that if you're capable of good works, if you're capable of helping another, that means the Holy Spirit is moving through your life, is moving through your body. Because outside of God, there is no such thing as good works. The question is, have you embraced it? The question is, have you spent time thinking about the Holy Spirit and moving to that? Or do you frustrate the Holy Spirit? Do you constantly reject the work of the Holy Spirit? And the Bible tells us that eventually there comes a point where he says, okay, yeah, you've blasphemed me enough. You've rejected me enough. You've sent me away enough. We think about Pharaoh and how so many times Moses came to him and eventually God said, okay, yeah, I'm done with you. I'm hardening your heart. We're done. That's a hard message, isn't it? That's a hard warning. When God says, okay, I, I sent you seven plagues, but that didn't get you the message. I've spoke through your life. I've given you Moses as a brother. And still, you reject me. You reject my people. You do these horrible things. Okay, it's over. That's a sad thing to think about, isn't it? That this soul, this poor soul, that was it. He was done. God hardened his heart, pulled the Holy Spirit from him, and then eventually he died. That's what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying, Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So there is Jesus right now. He is at the right hand of God. And at the end, when we face Jesus, there are two books. And everyone's name is written in the one book. But only some people have their name written in the other. And that other book is the book of life. And only those with their names written in the book of life will be raised to eternity with Christ. So how do we get our name in the book? 
That's the question, is how do we get our name written into the book of life? And that's really our theme for today. We're going to talk about faith heavily. But the thing to know from where we came before is that Jesus is the judge. That Satan stands before the throne of God day and night, accusing the brethren. That's what the Bible says. Jesus, however, is not only the prosecuting attorney, he's the defense attorney, and he's the judge. We have the thing wired. Call on his name, repent, and be saved. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. That verse bother anybody? That verse bothers the heck out of me. What is he talking about this done? Is Jesus contradicting everything that we know about faith? Is Christianity now a works-based faith? No. Our good deeds are the fruit of our faith. Good deeds are the evidence of the changed heart within us. Let's go to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 30. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. We're talking about mission work. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So we're going to pause and we're going to talk about Rahab for a moment because this is the core of our message. We're talking about this group of Pharisees, these guys who have lived and breathed the scriptures their entire lives. Here they are intent on enforcing the law, enforcing the law of Moses. And they're so caught up in the works of it, in the physical works of it, that they've missed God. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, I am in the Old Testament. The, that works. It's all about me. And you've missed it. So we're going to talk about the faith of Rahab, because she's mentioned right here in James. So we're in Joshua chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. But most of us know this story. If not, there's a great Veggie Tales about it. <laughs> I love me some veggie tales. But the, the gist of the story is that, so these spies are, are being sent out to go to Jericho. They're, they're figuring how they're going to take out the city. So these spies go in. What's crazy is that the king somehow hears that these guys are coming. Uh, you know, the, and so the, the king is looking for these guys. And somehow, we don't really hear how, they, they end up finding Rahab. And we don't really know. Here's the thing is that ladies are good at reading people. And I'm assuming that somewhere down in the marketplace or somewhere at the gate, she spotted these guys and she's like, oh, I know who those guys are. <laughs> I know who the strangers are. I know who those people are. And she's like, hey, man, you are in trouble. 
step on over here because you're going to not do well if you don't. So somewhere in there, they, they come together. She comes up, goes up to her apartment, and sure enough, they have this wonderful conversation. And we want to read this conversation because we got to know what she knows. Remember, she's a pagan. She's not, she's not Jewish. So what does she know about God? She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven, above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. That's what she knows about God. That's incredible. She's never spent a day in church. We could probably, you know, say she's probably never read the scriptures. She's probably never attended synagogue at all. What she knows is what she has heard. And somehow, somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit has moved in her life to the point where she has come to faith. And she says, you know what? I believe that God's going to do this. I believe that God means what he says. I believe that not only is there a God in heaven, that not only is, the, is he the God of the Israelites, but he is the God of everyone. Notice, she doesn't say, well, your God. She says, our God. She says, no, 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 I can have a part of this. She has come to understanding that she is not excluded from God's plan. That's immensely wise. She says, no, no, no. I'm going to protect these guys because they are not only Jews, they are from God and they are part of God's plan. Do you think she knew? Do you think that she knew that the Israelites were going to go march around the city, that they were going to go do this thing? Do you think that she understood that, you know, then the walls would fall down? Here's the crazy thing about, about God's plan. God is always working, and he is always moving towards his plan. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out God's plan. We try and figure out how is he going to do this. I do this all the time. I want to know exactly how the kingdom works. I want to know exactly what steps A and B and C and D, and I want to know when. I would like to have a calendar, please, if that's at all possible. Hey, we, there's an entire radio program dedicated to tearing apart the book of Daniel and Revelation to try and get a calendar, to try and look at world events to see exactly when and where and how the end times are going to come. There's books and books and books written on end time prophecy. Because we can't do it. We cannot just throw up our hands and go, okay, God, your plan. We can't do it. I can't. I want to know how. So I claw and scratch and want to read everything I can, to listen to everything I can about it. Thing is, you don't have to know the how. You don't have to know what God is going to do. You don't have to know exactly the next steps or the when. Part of our faith, part of having faith, is accepting that God will do what he will say and that it will happen how God wants it to happen. We just have to believe. And that when the opportunity comes, we just help the people that are in front of us. That's what God asks us to do. Feed people, love on them, take care of them. That's what he asks us to do. Just have a little faith in me. I promise my plan's going to come true. 
I promise. That's what Jesus said, right? He just said to you that there will be a second resurrection. There will be a time when you stand before the judgment seat. That's God's plan. He has said that's what he is going to do. Do you believe him? Do you believe that's what he is going to do? Can you take it in faith that he is going to do that? Even though you might not understand exactly how or why or when, can you take it on faith that that's what he's going to do? Because Rahab is absolutely incredible in her belief. She knows God has given Israel the promised land. And she is by every account a pagan. She hasn't been to church a day in her life. And scripture tells us she is a prostitute, that she sells her body for money. And again, she, somehow she finds these spies and, and she gets these guys and she spots them. And then she risks everything. Everything for her faith. At the minimum, if she's caught, what's she going to face? A severe beating, probably flogged in the public square? If they get busted, if the, the guys bust down the door and they come into her apartment and hear these spies? That's the minimum she's facing. She'll probably be killed. She's risking her entire life, and probably not only her life, but her family's life for helping these guys out. Based on what? What has she seen in her life What's her life like? She sells her body for money. That's what she does. She doesn't live in a nice house. She doesn't have tons of food in her pantry. She doesn't have really nice clothes. We put up hashtag blessed. She doesn't spend her days counting her blessings. She doesn't sit there thinking about, you know, her, her kids or the grandkids and the schools and the sports and what's for dinner. She lives in a top floor apartment on the wall of the city, selling her body for money in the marketplace. That's what she does. But she knows God, and she knows God's promise that Israel will have the land. So her deeds scream out her faith. Despite her life situation, she believes God will do what he says he will do. She hasn't seen any miracles. She hasn't been rescued. She hasn't been healed. She hasn't seen justice. She hasn't had provision, basic provision, let alone abundance. And yet, despite all of that, despite what she has not seen, she finds the spies. She tells them what she knows about God's plan. She hides them. Then she lies to the cops to protect them. And then she helps them escape. Makes no logical sense outside of her faith. Israel doesn't have some mighty army. They're a bunch of ragtag refugees. They've had a few successes as they've come marching across the desert, but it's not like they have some brand new type of chariot or like they have some brand new type of ballista that's been leveling everyone. When God has said, oh, you'll take those people into your hand, that's happened, but there's been a few times where God has said, no, uh, sorry, you guys have stepped outside of my will, and they've suffered defeat. Most of the time, the Israelites have been grumbling and rebelling over and over again. They have asked Moses if they can go back to Egypt. If you go back to uh, where we were there in Numbers, in Numbers chapter 21, the very next section after they have this victory, they're all grumbling, going, man, can we just go back? Can we just go back to Egypt? Let's go back to slavery. We had it pretty good when we were all slaves in Egypt. 
This is what Rahab knows. Her faith is what she knows God will do. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Rahab believes God when he says he has given the land of the Israelites. So when two Israeli spies come into town, she seeks them out, she gives them shelter, hides them, and helps them escape. That directly applies to us, doesn't it? Because most of us haven't seen a miracle. Most of us haven't been rescued. Maybe you have. Maybe you've been rescued from a bad situation in your life. If so, you're one up on Rahab. Have you been healed? Or maybe you know someone who was healed. We pray for healing a lot. Sometimes God says yes, and sometimes God says no. What about justice? Have you seen justice? If so, you're one up on Rahab. What about provision? Has God given you sustenance, even meager provisions in this life? I'd say most of us, have not ever been reduced to selling our bodies in the marketplace. I think we can say that fairly, that most of us have never experienced that. We got one up on Rahab. So in the face of our lives and what we know about God, what we know about God's plan, and what we know about what God said he will do, it goes right back here. It says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So based on what Jesus says, what are you willing to risk? What are you willing to do? Rahab risked it all. Everything. She risked everything. She risked not only herself, but her family for her faith. Can we do any less? Do we dare look at her and condemn her for her life? Do we dare look down on her? The Holy Spirit didn't. The Holy Spirit put her in the hall of faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11. She is mentioned in every single genealogy of Jesus. Holy Spirit, Spirit certainly didn't look at her that way. I dare you. I dare each and every one of you to do better than her. I dare you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27 say, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That is saving faith. 
saving faith that results in deeds and exemplified by deeds. See, I can't see your faith, but I can hear your words and see your deeds. Then we go on to verse 30. It says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus saying that he submitted himself to the Father, that part of his humanity is submission to the authority of God. And when we talk about the humility of God, this is one of those places. To exemplify this, we go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, and not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you believe him? Do you believe his words? Do you believe what he has said? See, I'm going to kind of summarize what we've gone through so far. And we're going to go right into the last section because Jesus is trying really desperately to reach these guys. He's saying, man, I, I see your deeds. I know what you do. I know what's in your hearts. He's trying desperately to break down their walls. And he's trying to turn the tables on these guys to get their attention. And I know it's been kind of a long review, but it leads us up to this last part. So remember where we started. He started with Jesus performing the sign, healing that paralytic. Then he talked about the Sabbath, that he's son of God, that he's Messiah. Then he talked about his equality to God in person and power and works and judgment and glory. Then he said what he will do. He said, judgment. Some will rise to eternal salvation. Some will rise to eternal damnation. And again, like I said, the tone is kind of accusatory. It's, it comes across as kind of angry or hostile. But really, Jesus is really pleading and reasoning with these guys in their language. He is begging for their souls. He is speaking their language on their terms, trying to pry open their eyes and their minds so they can see the truth in front of them because they have poured through the scriptures their entire lives. They know it front to back. It's one of the, the scriptures is their weapon. They use it against both the Sadducees, the, the corrupt ruling class, and against the regular people. That's why they're talking about this guy. This guy's been paralyzed for 38 years. They're concerned why he's carrying a mat. They're wielding the word as a weapon. Going, how dare you do that on the Sabbath? How dare you? And Jesus is saying, hey man, you've got it wrong. So remember, under the law, he's, he's speaking their language. Under the law, you have to have at least two witnesses. And Jesus says there are four witnesses who testify about him. And the first thing he says is, you don't have to take my word for it. 
It's the first thing he says is, you don't have to believe me. There are four witnesses, four independent witnesses that talk about me. If you don't believe my words, okay, fair enough. First witness, John the Baptist. Second witness, the works themselves. Third witness, God the Father. The last witness is their treasure trove, the scriptures. Those are the four witnesses that Jesus says testify that he is the Messiah. It says, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. If we go to John chapter 1 verses 6 through 8 or Matthew chapter 3, this is where we talk about John the Baptist. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Remember that John the Baptist is the one who points at Jesus and says, there he is, the man who I am unworthy to tie his sandals. That's what he does. That's his witness. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's John's testimony. The works. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. There's a guy standing right there that was paralyzed for 38 years. He's walking around carrying his mat. I don't know about you guys, I've never seen anything like that. These guys got to see that. He's saying, these works testify that the Messiah has come. They speak. Think about all the healing and the teaching and the feeding, the people raised from the dead. All of those deeds testify to Jesus as the Messiah. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 confirms this. He says, only with God's power could this happen. Surely this has to be the work of God. We know you are from God because no one else could do what you do. Verse 37, the Father testifies. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. God and the Holy Spirit have testified Jesus is the Messiah. God spoke at Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's kind of harsh, isn't it? You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Jesus walked through the door and was like, Phil, let me tell you something. You have never heard my voice, you have never seen my form, and my word does not dwell in you. <clears throat> Alrighty then, I'm going to go get on my knees for a little while. <laughs> That's what should have happened. These guys were the religious leaders of the time. Jesus walks in and says, hey man, you don't know me. You should know me. How come you don't know me? But nowhere in there did they pause to reflect. Nowhere in there did they say, oh, I should take a little stock. I should, I should rethink things a little bit. I should examine what I know and what I believe. And that's kind of the warning for us, right? Is to take a moment. 
right? When we get so full of ourselves and we think we know everything, when we think we've got it down pat, pause, reflect, go to God, ask the questions. That's what Jesus is saying to do. Because he says it's right there in front of your face. It's right there in the scriptures. That's the very next thing he says. But Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 talk about the Spirit of God speaking about Jesus. It says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit speaks. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. These are the things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And that last piece of testimony is the scriptures. It says, those guys, they, they hauled that guy before the leaders to find out how he was healed, to see if there had been an infraction. And Jesus says to them that the word of God, the very thing that they're using to accuse, would be the sword that executed their own punishment. It says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. Because if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? See, the word is meaningless, and it's empty without the work of the Holy Spirit. But it still screams from page 1 to page whatever it is in Revelation 22 that Jesus is Lord from beginning to end, that he is the author of creation, that he is the divine word. And what's what he's saying is, I'm right there. I'm right there in the pages. Of everything that you know, I am right there. It means they didn't have to have another source. It means they didn't need a new thing written. I want you to think about that in the, the context of world religion, in the context of other religions. I'm not handing you a new book. I'm not saying, hey, by the way, you missed something. Here's an add-on. Here's a piece you didn't have. He's saying, no, 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 no. 
everything that you already know, everything that you already have, everything that Moses said points to me. If anyone wants to say, well, you know, Jesus was a charlatan, he wasn't who he said he was, etc., etc., he didn't change the word. He didn't go back and rewrite or reauthor or change any piece of what they already knew. If he was standing there saying, well, you, you need to add, you know, a verse in uh, Genesis chapter 3 right there, and then you'll see that I'm there. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, no, no. The way that it is, the way that it was written, I am right there in the word. And if you just look, if you just open your mind, if you just open your heart, you'll see me. And then you'll know me and then you'll come to me. That's an amazing plea, isn't it? To say you already have the tools, you already have everything you need to come to me. So when you say, hey, I, man, I haven't seen a healing. I haven't seen a miracle. I haven't seen all these things that I read about in this book. I haven't had that happen in my life. No Red Sea is parted for me. No manna fell from heaven for me. Well, guess what? You're just like Rahab. Here you are living in a Gentile world, and all you have is the word of God and what you know about God, and you have God's promises. That was enough. That is more than enough. Because we get the Holy Spirit along with it. Rahab was commended for her faith. She was not righteous in and of herself. None of us are. It's important. Think about her position, her position in life, her deeds. You go, well, you know what? She was still beloved and chosen by God. Not by her own righteousness, but by the free gift of God. So when we think about ourselves, when we think about our lives, a lot of us, we look back with regret. We look back on things that we wish we would have done differently, things that we go, man, I, I really messed that up. I, I really did the wrong thing, and I did it for a long time, and I did it over and over again. Guess what? It doesn't matter. It was never about you to begin with. No matter where you came from, no matter what you did beforehand, God says, no, 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 you're still redeemed. You're still part of my plan. You're still welcome into my hall of faith. At that second resurrection, I still want your name written in the book of life, and you can still have your name written in the book of life. We just cry out to Jesus with a broken spirit. We cry out to God. But if we stand in front of a mirror and we think ourselves as worthy of redemption on our own, we are like these Pharisees. We're righteous in our own eyes. If we don't see ourselves as broken sinners in need of a Savior, our hearts are hard and the scriptures are closed to us. The example of this is in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, who was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, Lazarus by his side. So he called him and says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. 
But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, and this is the important part, They have Moses, and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So we have those four witnesses to testify about Christ. John the Baptist, the works, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and the Bible. Jesus gives us four witnesses who testify about who he is. Do you believe him? It's a warning about faith. And it's true that faith without works is dead. We read that in James. In this passage, we see the reverse. These Pharisees were steeped in the scriptures and in deeds, but they missed the forest for the trees. Because it's also possible to know your Bible and to act in good and godly ways without having a relationship with God. So our prayer is that God breaks down our walls, that he breaks down our legalism, that we could build a genuine saving relationship with Christ. Amen? Father, just think about our, our week coming up, and I lay it before you. I'm seeking your, your face. I'm seeking healing, especially for Brother Walt as he's going through rehab after his surgeries. Thank you that his surgery was successful. Thank you that he is in rehab. Thank you that they are getting him better. Father, just please continue that process. Please be with him. Father, I just lift up this week to you. Our kids are getting ready to go back to school, and we've still got work and sports. And Father, please help us to be good stewards of the children that you have placed in our lives, that we would care for them the way that you would care for them, that we would pour into them the things that you would pour into them. And please help us not to be locked within ourselves, but to boldly go out into the world this week to proclaim your name in our actions and in our words. And that, Father, we just want you to pour out over this valley. We want you to pour out over the state. We want you to shine in our nation. We want you to shine all over the world. You've chosen to partner with us on that. So, Father, please give us the provision, give us the, the words, give us the deeds, give us the path that we need to help those around us. Father, please help us to be comforted in your plan and to be bold and courageous, be willing to risk it all for you. We ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go fellowship.